Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Why and what and how and whether it was exciting or not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome. This is episode 34 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing main man artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. Some people feel you uh, by saying you're a bisexual and by kind of flaunting that in a way that uh, you're trying to... Who's protect- flaunting me? Uh, well, I mean, you say it in interviews. You, you... The only people that ever bring it up are people who are interviewing me. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you're very masculine to me, but... Um... Well, I am a stud. <laughs> Main Man was founded by Tony DeFries, who worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, David Bowie, Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. And I had 25 cents and a ticket to New York City, so I said, I'm going to go to New York City, I want to make my fortune. In this episode, we're continuing the story of the recording of David Bowie's Oh You Pretty Things, which became a hit for Peter Noon 50 years ago. Following on from DeFreeze explaining how he came to work with producer Mickey Most, who selected Oh You Pretty Things for Peter after an incredible run of hits with Herman's Hermits. DeFreeze continues his story describing the actual recording session at London's Kingsway Studios on March the 26th, 1971. So here's what happens. David wrote most of his songs on guitar, but occasionally he'd try and write a song on the piano. Every other keyboard player had enormous problems with it because David only played the black keys on the piano. So he was largely recording in F-sharp, which is not the ideal range for most vocalists. It's certainly not the ideal range for the guitar. It generally is not the ideal range for anything, even a piano. You're supposed to have some other notes in there. So on the one hand, it made David's version of the song very unique. But this is what we discovered. After Mickey heard the demo of the song, and because he was going to try and launch Peter Noon on a solo career. So Peter had been the lead singer of the Herman's Hermits and they'd made lots of successful records, especially under Mickey's production. They'd made a number of hits. But Peter wanted to have a solo career. Mickey said, OK, let's start looking for songs for you to do as a solo. And he was presented with a demo of... Oh, you pretty things. He didn't actually like the song to begin with, but he liked the idea of the song and the melody of the song. And Mickey was all about how can I fit this song into a formula where it will be catchy, it will be repeated, it has a hook. The hook in Oh, You Pretty Things wasn't immediately obvious unless you could get the piano part right. So Mickey says he'll do the song with Peter Noon, They've got an assembly of people to do it, which includes Herbie Flowers on bass, and they've got a piano player. 
The piano player says he can't play that because it's not what you would expect to play on the piano. Where are the other notes? And they try a few times, it doesn't work. So Mickey says, let's get David Bowie down here. He can play the piano. And along comes David. And yes, indeed, he can play the piano. But again, only on these black keys. And this is where Mickey was really very, very clever. Like I said, he really understood how to make a song work in the studio. He basically gets David to play it once, and he records that. And then he says, OK, I've got that. That's fine. Let's do the rest of the song. And we'll simply cut that piano part and repeat it. And we can repeat it in another key. And then we'll have the piano part we need. We don't have to worry about getting a piano player. Remember, this is being done before anyone's got a synthesizer, pretty much. Certainly not easily available. And before we've gone digital, where you can do that today, it's easy to do that today. People do it all the time. But in those days, it was a completely revolutionary idea to say, let's just chop it up and rearrange it so that we get what we want. And of course, it did ultimately work. Now, that sort of thing Mickey was very accomplished at. In a sense, he was a great engineer. After David played it once, he said, remember, it's probably late at night by this point, but he says, I'm tired and I can't play it again. And that's when he said, I'm not a real piano player. So Mickey says, just let's record it once and then I'll take care of it. And that's how he takes care of it, literally. So that then turns into the song, which does get to, I think, number 12 on the charts or something like that certainly made it as a chart song. And the benefit, in a sense, the bonus for David is that A, he's been recognized by another performing artist who's part of, in fact, the lead singer of, a very successful band. And he's been recognized by a highly successful producer. His song has become somebody else's hit. And for every songwriter... It's a major step. Because if you can write something that other people can turn into a hit, it means that you have the ability to create the song. And very often, the song is what makes the singer. It's not always the singer that makes the song. Some of Sinatra's best recordings ever were because the song was the right fit for his voice, his delivery, his ability to interpret the song. And that's true of an enormous number of songs. For David, this was a big step and a very important step because later on that year, now we're looking at the year it was recorded, which is 1971, although the song was recorded, that Kingsway episode that I've just recited, happened on the 26th of March at this little Kingsway studio and was released probably in April of that year because it was on top of the Pops in May. And here's a very peculiar fact that actually when it was on top of the Pops, again, because of the difficulty of finding a piano player, <laughs> David went and played the same keys on a piano 
on the Top of the Pops. It was his second appearance, actually, on Top of the Pops. So you had the spectacle of David going into Kingsway and doing it there, and then going into the BBC studio, doing it there, and getting credit in both cases, although it's not usually well known that he played on the original recording. But of course, by the time we came to record it in December of that year, we had actually put it on the Bowie promo, you know, this uh, double-sided disc that we did with David's songs on one side and Dana's songs on the other side. And amongst those songs on the Bowie side were Changes, Oh You Pretty Things. Both songs have a lot of meaning behind them. And, of course, both those songs and Quicksand and Life on Mars all ended up on Hunky Dory and made Hunky Dory a very important album, even though it didn't take off immediately it was released. It has subsequently become probably one of David's most important albums because the songs were so important on that particular album. They said a lot to not just his immediate audience, but to other writers, other singers, other performers, and especially to the audience that were embracing this new idea, this new character that suddenly appeared, which of course was David and then became Ziggy and then became all the other characters that he reinvented himself as, Aladdin Sane and so on. There's all this thread, this marvellous thread going through all of this where you see in Changes he talks about not having to be a richer man that you've got to get out of yourself to be yourself. In a way, you've got to be somebody else to be yourself. And he has the same theme in Oh You Pretty Things. There it's about something is coming, something is coming, the something's going to be a better place. And this idea that you're driving your mamas and papas insane is a lovely piece of lyrical thought that you're the pretty things that you are not understood by your elders and your parents that you've got to fight to make it happen that you're going to be the future it's all in that one song when we recorded it of course for hunky dory we got trevor on bass and woody on drums but very importantly, we got Paul Buckmaster to come along and play the keyboards, the piano, and all those marvellous keyboard parts. And of course, we had Mick Ronson doing an astonishing guitar throughout the entire album. So it became a much richer, fuller, better song when David did it and when we carried on performing it in concerts for the next many, many years. It was a staple of our concerts and became a very, very popular song. It was a very good outcome for Chrysalis because it said, look, we've made a publishing investment and deal in this songwriter who they did believe in. Both Terry and Chris believed in David as a writer not so much that they believed in him as an artist. I think they believed in him more as a songwriter. But 
They also believed in me because I'd been working in the business for some time at that point and they knew what I'd done for other people and they knew what, what I'd done with Alan and with Mickey. And so they knew that if I said, and I did say, that I was going to turn David into a major artist, that there was some reason to believe that that could happen. Albeit it wasn't immediately apparent from David's Lauren McCall I can't do another piano playing because I'm tired kind of appearance. He often came across David as being completely unaware of what he was doing, why he was doing it, and very tired a lot of the time. But this isn't because he was physically tired, it was because he was actually not that interested in the task that he was being asked to do. He was more interested in writing another song or creating another character and that was hard for people to grasp it was almost as though he'd gone to the studio he'd been asked to play piano and then he said okay I'll play piano I'm tired I want to go home now it was a side of David that kept on emerging throughout his career and people who worked with him had to sort of manage to bring him back up to speed as it were to sort of get him reinterested he'd lose interest very quickly in things so this is something that prevented people from seeing his true potential in a way that prevented him from seeing that he could actually go on stage and do a set for an hour or two and convince the crowd that he was completely energised and then, like he did at Radio City Musical, faint at the end of the performance. Now, was the collapse real or was it just David making a dramatic statement? Nobody really knows. Chances are that it was a bit of both, that he was actually exhausted. And at the same time, he was like, OK, if I collapse, everyone will be sorry for me. He wanted a lot of attention, a lot of fuss. In effect, he missed out as a kid on that, and he wanted it the rest of his life. He was looking for, in a way, he was looking for love, but he was always looking for more. He was looking for someone to take care of him, to take care of everything. And... In many ways, I fulfilled that for quite a long time. Like I took care of everything. You didn't have to worry about anything. But eventually, reality does sort of tend to intrude and say, OK, you've got to do this show, and you've got to do this show twice today. And you, you can't sort of say, I don't feel well, I don't feel like it, I want to go home now. You can't do that. That's part of the price of becoming famous. You can't just walk away. So it's a really dangerous thing in that sense. But David did want it. He did get it. He was very able to do the exercise. You can see it when he was working through Diamond Dogs. He was willing to go on rehearsing until he got it right. He was willing to draw the drawings until they came to some kind of life. He'd be willing to sit and talk about it for hours. But when, for whatever reason, it didn't happen, or the show was over and he could say, OK, I don't have to do it again, at least until the next day, the next performance, then he would want to just be either left alone or spoiled, but he didn't want to then be on anymore. He wanted to be essentially turned off. And a lot of performers do still go through that as a current part of performing it's a part of recording or songwriting bands go through it 
the idea that you can just do the same thing over and over again it's not always accurate it's very often you run out of whatever it is you need to do that again or you simply want to do something different in david's case it was very often the need to escape like i've created ziggy but i don't like ziggy anymore i'm tired of being ziggy i want to be somebody else and in most cases the answer to that is you can't this was a, an interesting time for David because his first trip to America early in the year inspired him to experiment with new approaches to songwriting and also the press that he received, especially in magazines like Rolling Stone, built his confidence, didn't it? Yeah, the press he got in America was enormously valuable because it sort of bounced back to the UK and said, well, you've got people in Rolling Stone writing about this freaky chap Bowie, who we thought was pretty much washed up, and all of a sudden, people in America are taking an interest, and Rolling Stone's writing about him, and the New York Times is writing about him, and all kinds of music magazines and regular press were putting columns about David, especially about Man Who Sold the World, in their papers. So it was a sign, in a way, for the English to say, oh, look, this guy is actually getting a following in America, so maybe we should pay more attention here. And they did. And we use that. I specifically use that. That's what I call the slingshot, where you, you take a little ripple from a big pond and you introduce it to a much smaller pond and it becomes a much larger ripple. That's what we did, and it works really well but not easy to do. And, of course, for David, it meant he had to go and be on in America, and he was. He had to wear the dress. He had to do the things. He had to be Lauren Bacall and James Dean at the same time, which was a unique thing to pull off, and keep it all real so that when he came back to England, he could come back with a much improved presence. And yes, I think all the Chrysalis folk helped get there. But I doubt that Mickey would have necessarily done that recording for Peter if he hadn't known that I was working with David and if I hadn't been involved. I think that my relationship with Mickey had a lot to do with him taking on essentially an unknown writer. He had access to every, every major pop writer in England and many of the American ones. He could easily have gone to them and said, I need a song for Peter Noon. They were all familiar with the Hermit's register of songs. They'd all heard them. And he would have probably got half a dozen offers of songs that were more appropriate, actually, for Peter than Are You Pretty Things. But Mickey had a certain confidence that I knew what I was doing because it had actually worked for him very well in the past. And Peter Noon, the man who recorded the song 50 years ago, now lives in America, still touring, or he will be once these COVID restrictions are lifted, and he begins his story by recalling the first time he heard Oh You Pretty Things. Uh, you know, the first time I heard it was uh, Mickey called me to his office, and he was, I think I, I was in his office and there was a Peter Grant and Mickey Most was sharing an office. It was There was some sort of turmoil because I think Mickey was moving over to an office on Charles Street. We used to have a joke, you know, it's a blinking number one or something like that. Some sort of saying that we always said when, it, when we liked it. And um, 
he said, this is going to be your first solo single. So I was very excited. It was going to be my first solo record. And of course it was, and it did very well, I think. It was an unusual record for me to do, but that was the first touch of it, I think. Mickey played it to me in his office. It was yeah. not on a yeah. tape, I think it was on a, like a shellac record. Yeah. You know, that one was obviously one of Mickey's best calls. You know, he would pull them out of nowhere. He was so convinced the song was the number one that it wasn't going to give it to Herman Stermitz, it was going to give it to Peter Noon and get me my first tip. The sessions didn't take long because I think he wanted to believe it all the time. You know, he, he wanted the singer and all the players to enjoy playing the music and be into it. And that every person in the room would try to make it better than the demo. You see, it was demo world. It wasn't like a songwriter world. It was a demo world. Somebody had put their version of a song onto a tape somehow. And then we just had to beat it. And you'd been working with Mickey for many years by that time, very successfully too. So you knew him well enough to trust his instincts, I'm guessing. He, he was my best friend. You know, he, he was my, my best man at my wedding. Mickey and I, it was some strange link. It, it was like Jimi Hendrix and Kramer. You know, he knew exactly what I was talking about. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. He was an unusual musician because he was very clear about what he liked and and if you think about all the songs that he did they're all just amazing copyright songs you know there's nothing there's nothing you can't find anything where you go he made that into a hit you go no those were hit songs those were hit songs before we even got near them the trick was to just improve on somebody's brilliant demo like I'm into something good was Carol King. We tried to improve on David Bowie's demo. And you know what? I feel sorry that I don't have a copy of it because it would be interesting to hear that, you know. And then David had to play it in the studio because nobody could play it as good as... There you go, that's the Mickey Mouse thing. Nobody could play it as good as David Bowie was playing it on the demo, so he had to play it on the recording. And, you know, when I made the record, I, I can remember in one of the newspapers, I must have known more about him than a lot of people because I said, I think David Bowie is the new Paul McCartney, which is so far away from what David Bowie wanted. But I meant as a songwriter, because, you know, we'd be like in, in a, the back room of a BBC thing and there was a piano and he'd play bombers and stuff like that, you know. So I was talking him up in every circle before I even made All Your Pretty Things. And, you know, for me, the one thing that made me uncomfortable at the session was that they decided to go on one. And all musicians liked the idea. You know, it goes, oh, you pretty things, like a, like a French record. It's playing on one. And, you know, of course, Herbie Flowers and all those people, they love that because, you know, ah, this will impress other musicians. And I, my feeling all my life was, if you're in the music business trying to impress other musicians, you'll never make it. So I still think to this day, when I play it live, I play it on two. I go, oh, uh, uh, not, uh, the drummer plays the two. So, you know, maybe Ginger Baker liked that version, but I think I would have preferred on the offbeat. But it was a big hit in France because French people always clap on that beat anyway. They clap along on the one. They go like this, oh, you pretty things. Don't you know? I think if it had been on the two, it would have been a blinky number one. When I look back, it's a very small place. Everybody somehow knew what everybody was doing. There were multiple music papers. One was more jazz, one was more pop, one was more teenage girl, but they were all there. So almost everybody in England at that time knew. Talk in England, and I'm not sure about anybody else because I lived in England, but, you know, we knew everybody's dates 
you know, people say, well, how do you know this? But I said, well, I met him at a session or I met him at a gig. Or, you know, we, I didn't only go to Herman's Hermit sessions. I had loads. I went to all of Donovan's sessions and all of Jeff Beck's sessions because we were part of a thing. You know, I, I, I was at every animal's mix. You know, not that they asked me my opinion. I never had an opinion in this studio. You know, turn that green knob a bit more to none of that. But everybody kind of knew each other. And because you were in the music business, they didn't have to like your records, but they had to like you or at least put up with you. You know, everybody knew each other. You know, I'd see John Lennon and they'd say, hello, Hermit. And, you know, everybody would know kind of each other. We, there were hundreds and hundreds of top of the pop and Ready Steady Goes and, you know, like we met The Who on Ready Steady Go and we brought them on American tour because we liked them. We didn't know them. We'd met them on the Ready Steady Go set and they were funny guys and laughable and at the time they were like a top 40 band. You know, they were not a power trio. They came on America and I think their record was like Happy Jack or something, a song that Herman Summits could have recorded. And during that tour, they decided that they had to move into another area. Jimmy Page is on, like, Wonderful World, and John Paul Jones is on all of the great Herman Hermit like No Milk Today, and There's a Kind of Hush, and Dandy, and Something's Happening. He did the arrangements. He wrote the arrangements. And like I say, almost comedically, he directed the orchestra in the studio while playing a Fender Precision bass. And I say he directed the orchestra with his face, you know, we just gave him a wink and a nod and they were great fun. Sessions were great fun in those days. And all those session people were part of that small English scene. You know, everybody knew Jimmy Page. If you couldn't get Clem Cattini, you got Bobby Graham. All of us were in a small scene. It was a very small music scene. And, you know, when I tell you that story about going in Mickey Mouse's office and you would, you would sort of be in an audition because you'd be sitting between these two big desks with Peter Grant on one side and Mickey Mouse on the other. And people like Ronnie Wood told me, you know, that he was told that if you pass that audition, being able to take all the nonsense that those two guys threw at you, they liked you. The world is not a better place without them in it. The, the, Peter Grant, when he got sick and I'd visit with him up there, on, you know, the seaside, the gangster seaside town that he lived in, what was it called, Eastbourne. He struggled to get up the stairs to the dressing room and everything, but he was always there telling me great stories, you know. Just the greatest character, made me laugh. We brought him on tour in America because he seemed to be like a bit of knowledge on mind and knowledge. That's where he got the knowledge to be Led Zeppelin's manager, being on tour with Herman's Hermits in America. And he said, I'll take care of the box office. I said, what you, come on, Peter, you don't know anything about box offices in America. He says, Peter, if I'm in the box office, no one else will be able to get in. <laughs> it's great, what a great, one after the other, great lines like that. He didn't carry any of our cash because uh, you, there wasn't that much. It wasn't like that when Led Zeppelin got on making money. See, Led Zeppelin was a, a machine to make money as well as great records. Herman's Hermits were like punks. We didn't ever do anything for money. Once we started asking out about money, that was the end of it. It wasn't about money. We were just so excited to be participating in this thing that the Beatles had started, really, or maybe Lonnie Donegan had started, I don't know. But we were, we were like world travellers instantly. There's this funny interview in a newspaper, and it, the interview's not with me. But in the interview, they say, Peter Noon is Herman from Herman's Hermits. Today, he met his idol, Elvis Presley, on a film set. And uh, 
Peter Nunes Herman from Herman's Hermits, who are on a 360-day tour, world tour. And yeah, like, that sounds impossible. But, you know, we did a 360-day tour. We just went, you know, France, Belgium, Holland, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Spain, all the way around the world. And that was a day off in Hawaii when I met Elvis Presley. And the next night we did a concert in Hawaii. And then the next night we started in Chicago or something. You know what I mean? We were always just on the way to the next gig, which is a fantastic life. And, you know, they were much more fun because you would be on a show and Del Shannon would be on the show and the little Anthony Imperials and Sam and Dave and Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry. And because we were musicians, we were part of this unique society. You know, we didn't have a secret handshake. We had a secret milkshake and it was all music people. And all people that we'd heard on the radio were now in the next dressing room. Every TV thing for me was a, a big excitement, especially Top of the Pops. In the history of Top of the Pops, I'd met Roy Orbison, the Beatles, shared a dressing room with people that were totally musical idols. So always to be at Top of the Pops was just this great, you know, that was like winning a Grammy Award, really, just being on it. You know, you were in the same chart as the Four Seasons. So, you know, it was all very big deal. That was a funny one because we were told that we had to have the people who played on the record if we wanted to mime it. So we had Tony Wilson, you know, we had one a hot chocolate, and David wore uh, a dress and a little hat. And there we were on top of the pop singing, oh, you pretty things with David wearing a hat and Peter Noon looking all chirpy. Everybody was taking the piss out of that whole thing because, you know, Boy George said to me, you know, when you came on singing that song on Top of the Pops, it was like the most glorious moment because nobody at the BBC knew what it was about. I didn't even know what it was about. I just thought it was a great song. I, you know, whenever I'm in France, I always hear it on the radio over there still, you know, it just is one of those really cool, just an unusual put-together pop song, really, isn't it? It's really well put together. And I remember it's three segments all the same. If you chopped it up you would have the same thing happening three times. And I remember that David couldn't play it all the way through very well. So Mickey, for the first time ever, we were doing edits, you know, razor blade edits it was in those times, like making the first verse become the third verse as well as, you know, that was the first time ever. It was like quite shocking, you know, because he kept saying he's not a piano player, but bloody hell, no one else could play it like that because it, it was that black notes thing. I said, it's not my key. This is not a good key for me. Let's do it in F. <laughs> I can't play it in F. I can only play it in F sharp because I only play the black notes. Okay. I mean, they, so you think Herbie Flowers, and like, now, he's, now he's got to play this thing in F sharp, you know, and that, it wouldn't be a good key for a guitar player or a bass player, but that's the way David wanted it. What key do you play right, it in we, now then? I play it in F. It sounds good in F, but you know, there's that little bit in the middle Da, 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 that is really tough in any other key except F sharp. You know, it just doesn't have enough notes in it. I can't, my piano's not switched on, but it's got a really weird bit in the middle that sounds better in when David play it than when I play it. Hard to imagine it was 50 years ago, isn't it, Peter? Time goes so fast. You know, I'm one of those weird old people that always look forward to being older. You know, I always hated that ageism stuff. So... When I look back, I'm happy that I've got a lot of things that I remember. So 50 years ago, when you told me it was 50 years ago, I was kind of shocked because it doesn't feel that long ago to me. It is amazing because at the time, people were saying like the music business was over. It's over because they hadn't heard Led Zeppelin's first song yet. 
Peter Noon reminiscing about recording David Bowie's Oh You Pretty Things in 1971, which became his first solo hit away from Herman's Hermits. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from this episode that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes. A lot of them never seen before that we're adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.